All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's direction on our time together. Our Father, we're thankful we have this time to reflect upon your word, for it is your word that is a tool you use by the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to grow us spiritually, to mature us. Father, it is your word that instructs us, that rebukes us, reproves us, corrects us, and gives us clear instruction on how we should think and how we should live. Father, we pray that we should not take this for granted, that we should not treat lightly the fact that we have such a provision before us of so much Bible teaching in this generation, and yet we fear that it is simply a sign of judgment on this generation for their lack of spiritual interest. Father, we pray for us that we may not succumb to the pressures of life, that we may learn to focus on the real priorities that count for eternity and not be distracted by all of these details in life that keep coming up. Just a sample of, of a failure in passing the test of prosperity. And so many today are doing that. They get distracted by the options but there's only one thing that counts for eternity. And Father, like Martha, we want to focus upon that. Like Peter, we say, where else should we go, Lord? For you have the words of life. And let us focus on that this morning as we continue our final studies in Matthew. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28. We're looking at these last three verses known as the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and working through what Jesus says here uh, verse by verse. One of the things that I've pointed out in the past is that that this concept of discipleship is a, is a has become a buzzword, has become um, something that is been distorted a little bit in modern American evangelicalism. In fact, if you go to some segments of evangelicalism, especially over the last 60 or 70 years, the reason the church is a failure, according to some, is because we've failed to make disciples. But what they mean by that is that we fail to do it a certain way. They focus on methodology, and it's not a methodological term. It is a term that focuses on training, on equipping, on making students of the Word of God. And there are going to be many people, Jesus experienced this in his ministry, that as he taught more and more deeply 
what the Word of God said, there were many disciples who left him. They just, they just weren't committed. They just weren't truly passionate about the Word of God. They wanted to be saved, but they didn't necessarily want to live a spiritually focused, God-centered life. And yet that's the mission that Christ is emphasizing here when he says uh, to make disciples. That's the focal point. One of the things I've observed in the last week, and some of you may have seen an article that came up on on uh, uh, Fox News yesterday about a pastor, I think he was from Georgia, who basically was telling people that telling Christians, telling church, and quit coming to church. Go do something else. And his whole point was 80% or more of Christians who are darkening the doors of a church on Sunday morning are not involved. They're not studying the Word. They're not reading the Word. They're not involved in applying the Word in their own lives. They're not uh, learning, they're not applying, they're not giving, they're not serving, they're not committed. They just basically take up space. And he's right. You've heard it from this pulpit and you've heard it from other pulpits. If you think that you can counter what the world is doing in reprogramming you and brainwashing you according to its system, if you think you can counter that in an hour on Sunday morning, and that's the extent of your biblical focus during the week, then you're fooling yourself. You're in self-deception. That's arrogance. You are trying to fool God, but he's omniscient, so he's not buying it. You are just trying to somehow placate your own guilt feelings because you can say, well, see, I go to church every Sunday. But you're not fooling anybody that's significant. You're not fooling me. You're not fooling anybody else. And might as well go play golf and have a good time. You know, go do something that is going to be uh, somewhat joyful for you in this life because you're basically going to be a failure in the spiritual life when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ. The focus of the church is not on the babies doesn't mean you leave them behind. The focus of most churches today, if you listen to what's been written about the purpose and function of the local church by many pop writers and influential pastors in the last 50 or 60 years, targets the people who are simply curious. They just want to get the seekers in. Now, some of them, granted, have an evangelistic interest, and maybe some of these pastors have the gift of evangelism. But the scripture emphasizes that we're to make disciples. And that has to do with creating learners and those who are growing to maturity in the spiritual life. The target is maturity. And I believe and have always believed in any system of education that if you raise the bar of expectation that people will rise to it. The people who really want to learn, really want to grow, really want to advance in life, they will rise to the level expected of them. But if you go to the lowest common denominator, then even those who have a desire for more will 
will compromise and they'll never never rise above the level of elementary teaching that is being provided. And that's why we have such a weak, impotent, diluted church in America today. Because we are not we don't understand this concept very well. We don't understand how to do it. Pastors don't. I remember uh, it's been over 20 years, almost 30 years now, I heard uh, Dr. Earl Rodmacher speaking at a pastor's conference. One of the, at that time, it wasn't the Chafer Seminary Pastor's Conference. It was just an ongoing pastor's conference that George Meisinger uh, continued to uh, manage and promote, and they met at that time only every couple of years. But we were meeting in Phoenix when uh, Dr. Rodmacher was... was um, the speaker, the keynote speaker, and Dr. Rodmacher said, made a brilliant observation. He says, the church is the largest nursery in the world. It's filled with spiritual babies. And the nursery workers, that is the pastors, don't have a clue how to get them out of diapers. That's making disciples. It's not a methodology, it's a vision. It's understanding what is necessary to teach people, and as Ephesians 4, 10, and 11 says, the purpose of the gift of evangelist and pastor-teacher in this dispensation is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Pastors have to understand that you equip people by the Word of God. Second Timothy a passage that we quote all the time in Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen that Scripture is uh, breathed out by God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished. That was the old uh, King James translation, but it's a form of the word that's used there in Ephesians four ten and eleven. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. How are you equipped? We are equipped by studying the Word of God because the Word of God is what God the Holy Spirit uses to transform us internally. And that's really the, the focal point. So when we come to looking at this passage, it, it's critical. It's critical for the health of the church and something we all need to be reminded of week in and week out of what our priority as believers is supposed to be and what we are supposed to be engaged in. When I was in Albuquerque yesterday and the day before, had very little but some time to just visit some with uh, with Charlie and with Andy, and we were talking about and sharing ideas and observation about what's going on across the country and across the world in terms of uh, of Christianity and especially the, the the great challenges of communicating the gospel to the uh, younger generation commonly known as millennials. And one of the things that came out as we were at this conference, and sadly it wasn't well attended, and that's for a number of reasons, but that to me as I looked at it, and it was quite, it made me quite sad watching it because it's a, it, it was a look, a microcosm, of what's going on in Christianity in America. And when and and everybody there was over the age of 50, most of them were over the age of 60 or even 70. 
40 years ago when I was in my 20s and there was a conference on marriage and a family, what does the Bible say? I'd have been there. Anybody who's been married less than 10 or 15 years really needs to be learning some things about what the Bible says about marriage and family. People who are in their 70s and 80s, they need to be reminded, but they're not in the that time frame where they're having babies or where they're building families or even seeking someone as a life partner in marriage. And so it was an older crowd. And we heard the same thing in conversations during the breaks and everything from one family after another is we've reared our children in the scriptures. We took them to church and went to Bible class. They're not actively negative to the word but they can't figure out what their priorities are. There are so many distractions in our lives that they can't get past you know, all the clutter to realize what they need to grab hold of. And as a result, they, they find it difficult to even to show up at church once a week, much less get into the Word three or four times a week. And that, that's sad. It's self-destructive. But that's the reality, and that's what we saw. At This is a rather large church. They run about 800 on Sunday morning, and they had about 30 show up for a weekend, weekend Bible conference. I remember a time in this country when you did, had a church of that size, you would have at least a third, maybe half of the congregation show up for something like this on a Friday night and a Saturday morning. We need to be in prayer for this nation. There is so much distraction that people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, even older, but primarily that generation that desperately needs to focus on the Word can't figure out how to get rid of the distractions in their life, and that's tragic. But to be a disciple, to be what Jesus calls a disciple, a learner, a student of the Word, someone who is... Pursuing spiritual maturity, that's one of the first things you have to figure out. It's fundamental to time management. How do you spend your time? Get rid of the stuff that distracts you from the one thing that's going to count for eternity and, and, and focus on that. I remember the first time anybody ever gave me a, uh, just a, you know, encouragement in the area of time management. I had gone, I was out of college. I had learned this and that about time management, but this was something that I really wanted to do well, and that was do well, excuse me, do well in my studies in seminary. Then I went up to visit Randy Price. Randy had gone straight from University of Texas to Dallas, and I had to work for a couple of years to save some money. And I went up there just to look at the campus and talk to him, find out what was required, things like that. And he said, you know, Robbie, the guys that get accepted back then, it was just men that went to Dallas, said, the guys that get accepted here are all smart. Every one of them have uh, high IQs. They've done well academically. They have, they are intellectually prepared. The difference, and every one of them could make straight A's. The difference between those who do and those who don't is their management of time. And you have to figure out why you're here and what you need to not be doing while you're here so that you can excel in the purpose you're, you're here for. And that applies to all of life. There are a lot of good and wonderful things in life that distract us. But that's the problem. 
That's what makes them wrong is they distract us from the focus on God's word and why we're really here is to glorify him. So Jesus is focusing on that. That's the mission for the church. That is the mission for every believer, but I think especially for those who are gifted in the area of of leadership. So just a reminder, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and because that authority is being given to him, that authority is what backs the authority of the leaders in the church, the apostles. In the New Testament, the temporary gift of apostle and prophet and the permanent gifts for the church age of evangelist and pastor teacher. His authority as the head of the church is what is delegated to those leaders. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We haven't quite developed everything we need to out of that phrase yet by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, by teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So he mentions, as we've studied already, the authority that's been given to him and delegated to the leaders in the church. We looked at the phrase, go therefore, that is not an imperative but a participle, and will be the focal point of just an innumerable number of sermons to try to get people to commit to the mission field. And I talked about that, that it is not an imperative. However, it does pick up something of an imperatival force from the main verb. Any participle of this type that precedes a, 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 a command will attract to it grammatically a sense of that. But that's not the focal point of this passage. It's not a go passage. It is a make disciples passage. And we're to make disciples of all nations. Now, I've talked about what it means to make a disciple, but last time didn't get to this next phrase, which we'll cover this morning. And then the fourth thing is, the concept of baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We'll get that covered today, and then we'll come back next week and following to look at the second important phrase, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And then Jesus' last statement, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we looked at the context where these disciples have met Jesus in Galilee. They have gone to a mountain. We don't know which one. There are numerous mountains there, so he designated a specific one. It could very well be one of two or three major hills just along the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum where several of them lived. He tells them that they are to make disciples. That's, that's the imperative here. The go is simply a, a participle of time. As you go, while you go, as you're living your life, you are to make disciples. And we looked at the term there, mathetuo is the verb. It is an, an, an aorist imperative, which means it's a priority. It's a second person plural, which means he's addressing all of them. It's not selective. And I believe that he is addressing all 
the church, those who will be, who will come to Christ and be leaders in the church through them. That's always a major interpretive issue. Is Jesus just talking to the twelve or is he talking to the twelve as representatives of the church and the church age? The verb is rather restricted in its use. It's only used four times, three times in Matthew and one time in the book of Acts, which is uh, instructive. It means to make people learners, to develop learners, to develop students of the word. Uh, It's not a synonym for being a believer. These are different. We'll get into some of those distinctions later. I pointed this out last time that there are those within uh, Reformed theological circles, those who are in what is called lordship salvation, who have made the error of thinking that a disciple is a synonym for being a Christian, for being a believer. But being a believer is receiving a gift. When we study the discipleship passages, there are commitments, there are demands, there are responsibilities that are emphasized in discipleship passages. You can be a believer without being a disciple. And in some cases, you can be or appear to be a disciple without being a believer. Classic example, of course, is Judas Iscariot. But there were, there were others at that time. The means that is developed, as we saw, uh, the application of this, rather, by the apostles was clear, is clearly seen in Acts. It's not following the methodology Jesus used. Jesus called the twelve to himself. He's not setting a, an eternal methodological paradigm here. This is not the pattern to have small groups, despite navigators in Campus Crusade for Christ and innumerable other organizations. It's, Jesus isn't teaching small group dynamics. He is doing something significant, unique, one of a kind with those twelves, basically the eleven, but they're still referred to as the twelve. They are the foundation of the church. You get into Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and prophets, they're the foundation of the church. So he is building them as the future leaders, the, the foundation stones for what will be accomplished in the church. But when we watch what they do in Acts, what they are doing is they're teaching to any size group. Sometimes it's small, sometimes it's large, but the focal point is teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is describing the early church. That's their priority. That's their passion. It's the study of the Word. It's the study of what the Word teaches. It's didache. That's the emphasis. We saw this again also in um, Acts 5.25, that that this is what the apostles were prohibited from doing by the Sanhedrin. Of course, they didn't obey that. They were teaching. That was their focal point. They weren't, um, and that, that described everything from their evangelism, their announcement of who Jesus was, to instruction. Now, the object of the verb is all nations. We are to make disciples 
of all nations. This is the marching orders of the church. This indeed does include worldwide missions, the whole idea of taking the word of God uh, to all the nations. So the extent of the mandate is to all the world, to all the nations. However, like many other passages of Scripture, uh, this is controversial, and there are some who translate it a different way. It is the phrase pantata ethne. Panta is from pas in the Greek, which means all. And it's a, the phrase is important here because it informs us of the meaning more so than just looking at the individual words. That's one of the things that, that uh, in Bible study and in exegesis has come into uh, effect in the last uh, 20 or 30 years as a result of using computers. Back before computers, you would do word studies and you would take a concordance and you'd open it up and you would look at the word ethne and you would see that sometimes it means Gentiles and other times it means nations. But if you wanted to do a search on a phrase, you really had to know your Greek Testament. You would then have to turn to pas and the word all is used you know, who knows how many times, probably three or four hundred times in the New Testament, but you're looking for just those places where it's used with ethne. And that takes a lot of time to work through all of those things. And now with the computer, you can do these phrase searches, which helps you understand that a phrase means more or can mean more than the sum of its parts. So there have been those who have said, well, this is he's getting ready to give the marching orders for the church. The church is distinct from Israel, so this should be translated uh, taking the gospel to all the Gentiles. It's foreshadowing the focus on the on the Gentiles, but this had certain replacement theology overtones to it, and it doesn't fit usage uh, that we find in Matthew. When we look at Matthew, we see that eight times, and I mistyped that, it's not the phrase, but eight times ethne, the word, refers to Gentiles instead of Jews in Matthew. It refers to the non-Jews, to the pagans, as opposed to, uh, to the Jews. In contrast, the full phrase, pantas te ethne, or all the ethne, is used four times in Matthew to refer to all the people, or all the tribes, all the nations, in contrast to a Jewish versus Gentile contrast. And what Jesus is saying here when he phrases it this way is he's bringing to the mind of his disciples the promise to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12.3. One of the things that I have come to learn in studies of the Jewish backgrounds to the Gospels and studying the nature of, of Judaism and the training in the scriptures that they received, even though it led to legalism, is that at that time it was probably a 99% literacy rate among, among the Jews. It might have been more. When any young man was growing up as a child, he would be drilled in the, 
in the scripture, he would be expected to have memorized uh, much of the Torah by the time he was six or seven years old. He could recite from Genesis through Deuteronomy from memory. By the time he was bar mitzvahed, he would have memorized all of the Old Testament in Hebrew. He knew it. So that often in the teaching of Jesus, he simply refers through a phrase or a word to a passage in Scripture, and immediately the whole story, the whole episode, everything would come to his listeners' minds. There are times in history when the church has been like this. In Massachusetts, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, in the 1670s, no town in Massachusetts had a literacy rate of under 95%. And the reason was the people knew that the most important thing a Christian could do is to be able to read and understand the Word of God, so everybody has to be literate. Studies have suggested that that among ancient Israel, they had the highest literacy rate of any people in the ancient world. And so when Jesus makes these statements where he is saying, take the gospel to all the nations, what would come to mind in the, in the disciples' mind is Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. As part of the Abrahamic covenant, God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so what they are hearing in this great commission to them is that there is a shift taking place. That, that whereas Israel has been the primary vehicle for worldwide blessing in the past because of discipline that is going to come on them, as the, our Lord announced in Matthew 24, that now there's going to be a shift and the, uh, the secondary means by which God is going to advance the Abrahamic blessing is going to be through the church in this church age. So we are to take the word of God to all the nations. Now this is, this tells us that that command at the beginning, or that word, excuse me, that's not a command in verse 19, go therefore, even though this passage grammatically isn't emphasizing that as a command, it is emphasized as a command in some of the parallel passages. And those same parallel passages that Jesus uh, utters near, in this post-resurrection period also focus on taking the word to all the nations. In Luke 24, 45 to 46, we have an explanation of what Jesus did when he has um, after he has walked his way with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we're told that after they arrived, he revealed who he was to them. And then it says he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead uh, for the third day. And that repentance and remission of sin very Jewish, turning to God, Deuteronomy 30, 1 and 2, and forgiveness of sin for the nation Israel, that turning to God and forgiveness of sin should be preached. And the word there is from the uh, verb keruso, meaning to proclaim or announce, 
should be announced in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Well, what that implies is it's going to start at Jerusalem, and then it's going to go forward to all the nations. And there is a purpose clause there that this is what they should be doing. So that implies that imperatival uh, sense that they are sent. In John twenty twenty one, he uses that word talking to the disciples, as the Father sent me, I also send you. So we are sent. We are to take the gospel to the whole world. And in Acts 1.8, it becomes very clear. He tells the disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. So this is the Magna Carta of the mission movement, that we are to evangelize, but not simply evangelize, but to train and equip those who are saved so that they can serve God. Now, how do we do that? That's the command, is to make disciples. And then we have these two phrases that are used in verse 19 and then in verse 20, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then in the next verse, teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. Now, why does he say this? Baptizing them and teaching them. What is really going on here with this word baptism? Why does Jesus state it this way? And it's very important, and and very few people understand this. And consequently, there's a lot of misinterpretation, of misunderstanding of this passage. They just ignore it. How are we to understand baptism? There are three statements here that I think are are questions here that I think are important. First of all, why is he using the word baptism? Is God a Baptist? Well, in one sense, yes, he is. But why is he putting it that way? Why doesn't he say something like evangelizing the world or getting people saved? What is going on here? Why is he um, using this phraseology here instead of something else? Second, what baptism is meant here? What is he talking about? Is he talking about spiritual baptism, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, or is he talking about what is the normal interpretation, which is, Water baptism, baptism by immersion for someone who is trusted in Christ as Savior. And then the third question we need to address is what is the meaning or significance of baptism? We have to understand those three things. We can't just assume that we know what this passage is talking about. So I think the best thing to do is to take the questions in reverse order. What is the meaning or significance of baptism? Why is baptism... Uh, emphasized in this passage and in other passages in the New Testament. Well, first of all, we have to understand what the word baptism means. It's from the Greek word baptizo, and it's just been sort of transliterated in over into English. It's been just adopted uh, and 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 uh, adopted from the Greek word. Now, why did they do that? 
Why didn't they translate it? Why did they just uh, transliterate it and bring it over? The reason they did is because the basic meaning of the word in Greek was to dip, to plunge, or to immerse. Now, in the early church, by the 4th or 5th century, there had become an identification of Christianity with the state. This began with the Edict of uh, of Tolerance by Constantine in, I think it was around 315, 316, uh, excuse me, 415, 416 A.D., and so that the Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and if you weren't a Christian, then everything else was was illegal. Now, that developed, alongside of that, developed the idea of baptism as a sign that you were a Christian. Well, if you waited until you were until you were saved, when this concept of of, of membership in the church is being merged with the concept of being a citizen of the state, then baptism becomes a legal political function as well as a spiritual function. And so if you did, weren't baptized, then you weren't being loyal to the state. And so throughout the Middle Ages, being baptized as an infant was a sign that you were also going to be reared as a productive citizen of the state. And so these two ideas merge together. When we get to the period of the, of the Protestant Reformation, there's a group that develops known as Anabaptists, a word that means to be baptized a second time because nearly everybody was baptized as an infant, So these guys came along and they said what the Bible teaches is believer's baptism, it's immersion, and it comes as a result of a profession of faith when a person believes in Christ as Savior. That's when they're to be baptized. Well, when you're in an environment where baptism is a mark of entry into the state as a citizen of the state, to say that infant baptism, which has political profound political overtones that that infant baptism is wrong you're making a statement that is viewed as as a threat to the state it's a traitorous statement so when you say that that no one should be baptized until they become a christian you're making a political statement that is viewed as treason this is why those early anabaptists were so persecuted by the state is because they viewed that as a, as a threat to the unity and the foundation of the, uh, of, of the empire or of, of, the, of, of the state. The idea of baptism as that which occurs only after a person, a person has trusted in Christ as Savior is basically recovered in that uh, Anabaptist movement. In fact, some, some years ago, I came to understand this as a student of church history when I was in seminary, but I I did my pastoral internship at a Baptist church, and one time I asked the pastor, I said, what makes a Baptist a Baptist? And he said, well, evangelism, believing Christ, etc. I said, none of that makes you a Baptist. And I would ask other Baptists, I knew seminary professors and others, nobody ever knew. 
I asked an unsaved Jewish friend of mine what made a Baptist a Baptist. We were standing in a Baptist, one of the first Baptist churches in uh, Mystic, Connecticut, and he said, well, two things make a Baptist a Baptist. One, they believe in baptism by immersion, and two, they believe in separation of church and state. has nothing to do with the gospel. And I was floored. Most Baptists don't understand that. Baptist preachers don't understand that. But here's this unsaved Jew who understands it. That was the key because they understood that this was a public profession of faith and it had nothing to do with one's civic duty or civic responsibility. The Though the word literally means to dip or to plunge or to immerse, it has a symbolic significance, and that is of identification. That when somebody is baptized, they're identified with something. G, uh, John the Baptist came along. You have water baptism with John the Baptist, and his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so those who were baptized were being identified with John's message and the coming and preparation for the coming kingdom. Then Jesus came along, and he wanted to be baptized by John, but it's not John's baptism because he doesn't have anything to repent of because he is sinless. It is a distinct baptism. And it is a baptism because he is being identified with the message of the kingdom because he is the king who's offering the same message and that is that of the kingdom. Now, with believers' baptism in the church age, there is a different identification. And it is the identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the purpose for believers' baptism, water baptism by immersion in the church age, is to teach through a symbol a very abstract doctrine known as positional truth. As soon as you use those words, a lot of people just glaze over. They have no idea what that means. And that, according to Romans 6.3 and following, means that we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that the power of the sin nature is broken. And nobody ever teaches that when they do a baptism. Nobody understands that in baptism. They just think that somehow this is uh, what you do, that it has something somehow to do. Maybe it has something to do with your salvation or it's just a public witness. But they don't understand that these Christian symbols that are in the ordinances of the Lord's table and baptism are designed to teach something to help the person, the individual Christian, understand a spiritual truth that is foundational to their Christian life. So baptism, believer's baptism, is designed to teach the abstract biblical teaching of our new position in Christ. We are in him. We have a sin nature that is broken. We have a new identity. We have a new destiny. And we have a a new mission in this life, all of which needs to be understood when you are baptized as a believer. Romans 6.3 says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're identified as death. That's the picture of being taken and immersed in the water. Coming out of the water is a recognition of, of resurrection. We now have new life 
the water itself is a symbol of cleansing and the complete forgiveness of sin that we have in Christ. So it is a proclamation of the gospel, but it is designed to teach the new identity of every believer in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say in Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Into the water is death, out of the water resurrection. Why is this significant, Romans 6, 6? Because we know this, it's a causal participle. Because we know this, that our old man, that is everything that we were before we were saved, was crucified with him, that the body of sin, that is the sin nature, might be done away with. That doesn't mean that the sin nature is removed. It's that the sin nature's power is now broken. Before you're saved, the only thing you could do is the wishes, the will, the lust, the desire of the sin nature. After you're saved, you have options to serve the Lord or to serve the sin nature. That's what Romans 6 is all about. So that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Diagramming it, At the instant of faith, we are placed into Christ, identified with him, and this is our new positional reality. We are a new creature in Christ. That's the third answer to the third question. what, What does baptism mean? Or, excuse me, the third question is which baptism is met? And it's, um, wait a minute, third question. Uh, let me go back. I lost what the third question was. Third question, the meaning or significance of baptism. The second question is which baptism is meant. There are eight baptisms in the New Testament. The first three are ritual. They involve water. You also have water in the baptism of Moses and the baptism of Noah, but the people that get wet die. The three ritual water baptisms are the baptism of Jesus, which I just explained is unique because it's identifying him with the message of the kingdom, and he is the coming king. The baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism to repentance, to prepare for the coming of the kingdom. And uh, the third is the baptism of believers, Acts 2.38. What's interesting, Acts 2.38 talking about the baptism that is accomplished on the day of Pentecost. This year we went to a new archaeological dig that's south of the southern gates of the temple. You've heard me teach on this before and shown pictures of the mikveh that were uh, there on the southern steps. Uh, Mikveh was the ritual bath that any Jew going into the temple would go through. They would walk down one side of the stairs, immerse in the water, and come out the other side of the stairs. And now they are ritually prepared to enter into the temple compound. So that's up. We read in um, we read in the Old Testament passages that when the city of David is developed and the temple is built, that they had to fill in the the uh, the, the offal. O-P-H-E-L. So that area has now been excavated. It's between where David's palace was and the southern steps of the temple. And what they have uncovered there is hundreds, close to 200 ritual baths. Before, we only had 35. 
Now we have over 200 ritual baths. So when the disciples, when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and he has 5,000 converts, he's got a lot of places to do baptism right there on the spot with all these mikvod. Now there are five dry baptisms. That is the baptism of Noah where those who are with Noah are identified with him and in the ark and they survive the flood. The baptism of Moses, those who pass through the sea and the cloud are identified with Moses in his mention. They don't get wet, but the Egyptians that follow them, they get wet and they're destroyed. See, there's the baptism of fire judgment in the future. There's the uh, also the baptism of the cup related to Jesus, uh, substitutionary death on the cross. Those are the... Um, dry baptisms, and then the fifth one is the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now the question comes up, which baptism is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about believer's baptism? Some have said, no, he's talking about the baptism by the Holy Spirit because they want to not have to perform believer's baptism in this dispensation. This is part of what's known as uh, hyper-dispensationalism. There have been some others who have taught this. But Jesus can't be talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit here for three reasons. First of all, baptism of the Holy Spirit has only been mentioned once when John the Baptist says, the one who is coming after me will baptize by the Spirit and by fire. But there's no explanation by John of what that means, only that this is some future thing that will happen. So Jesus isn't going to be using this until there's some teaching on it, and that doesn't happen until later. The explanation and the understanding of baptism by the Holy Spirit isn't developed until Paul comes along some 15 years later. So Jesus wouldn't be telling them to do something that is meaningless to them. And then third, if we understand the grammar and context here, The command is, you all make disciples by baptizing. You can't separate the baptism action from the command to make disciples. And the ones he's telling to do this act are the disciples. The baptism by the Holy Spirit is performed by Jesus using the Holy Spirit. We've discussed that many, many times. So this cannot be a reference to the baptism by the Holy Spirit. It must be a reference to uh, believers' baptism. And now, finally, the first question, why is baptism mentioned instead of evangelism or witnessing? I'm going to try to go through this quickly. How do we understand baptism? There's a figure of speech called a metonymy. You never learned it in school. A metonymy is a figure of speech where one noun is used instead of another noun in order to communicate something. Okay, so it's a word substitution. We do this, we do this all the time. It's a figure of speech that replaces the name of one thing with the name of something else with which it is closely associated. That association, uh, for simplified reasons, can be cause and effect. The cause is put for the effect, or can be effect put for the cause, which is what we have here. We come across examples of this in everyday life. For example, I could state 
that the crown of England pursued a policy of expulsion of the Jews from Edward I in 1290 until Cromwell in 1657. The crown is just a metal object. The crown can't do anything. But the crown is put for the authority of the government of England. That's a metonymy where you put exchange one noun for another. I have some other examples here. We might read the phrase we've heard, the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, the word the pen is used as a substitute for what the pen produces, what it writes. So it, that's, that's a figure of speech to emphasize something. We can say the Oval Office was busy at work on some policy, well, the Oval Office can't work. It's just a place. But what happens in that place is something related to the president and the executive branch of government. So it's like using the crown instead of the British government. We'd use the Oval Office as a metonymy for the president and executive power. You might tell somebody, let me give you a hand. Well, you're not talking about giving them a literal hand. You're talking of putting hand in place of the idea of helping you. So we do this all the time. English is filled with these kinds of metonymies. And two prominent ones are metonymy where you put the cause in place of the effect or you put the result in place of the cause. And what we have here is baptism is the result that's put for the cause, which is salvation. Now, so when Jesus says this, that you are to make disciples by baptizing them, he's putting the result instead of the cause. Now, why would he do that? Why is this seemingly convoluted using this kind of figure of speech? Because what he's talking about here isn't simply evangelism. He could have said, uh, you make disciples by evangelizing. But I evangelize all kinds of people that don't believe. So saying it that way, make disciples by witnessing. Well, we witness to people all the time that don't respond. He's not talking about those who don't respond. He's not talking about the process of bringing people to salvation. He puts baptism there because the normative expected process is that you're going to witness to people those who believe will then be baptized as is commanded to, be, to uh, give that ex exhibit of their uh, identification with Christ in the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And so by putting it this way, Jesus is talking about that whole initiation process that occurs at the beginning of our Christian life when it is expected that we believe in Christ and then get baptized in proclamation of that, that spiritual death. So that's the focal point here. That's why he says you make disciples by baptizing. That wraps up the whole process of evangelism through regeneration and the birth of a new believer as uh, proclaimed through baptism. The next thing that happens is you have a new baby who needs to be nourished, and so it has to grow. And that's what we get into and we'll get into next week with the next participle, which means uh, to teach. It's done by teaching them to observe 
all things. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of our mission, the purpose of why we are uh, called to grow to spiritual maturity and to replicate ourselves through evangelism and through teaching, that this is primarily done through leadership and certain leadership gifts, but it is still a responsibility for every believer. It's a foundation for missions which starts out outside of our front door. It is for every believer to be involved in. And Father, we pray that we might have a passion to be disciples, to grow to maturity, to witness to those who need to hear the gospel, and to help encourage them to get in a position and a place where they can grow and mature as believers in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for anyone who's listening to this message, uh, either now or later electronically, that if they've never trusted in Christ as Savior, they would understand that's the issue. That's the most important issue in life. It determines your eternal destiny. Scripture is very clear on what we must do to have eternal life, to have new life in Christ, and that is simply to believe that he died on the cross for our sins and that our sins are paid for and we have forgiveness in him, and that is by faith alone in Christ alone. We contribute nothing to it. We simply accept it. We believe it. We trust in Christ's death on the cross and that alone for our salvation. And we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged as a result of our study of your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen.